Hello and welcome to Dairy Pod. I'm Kristen Davis from Dairy Australia. In this episode, we share a recent dairy innovation webinar discussion about the research into calf vitality and the role that genetics and effective record keeping plays in the birth of a healthy calf. Dairy Australia's Regional Extension Officer, Liz Mann, speaks with Agriculture Victoria PhD student Michelle Axford about the research. They are joined by Tori Tuckett, a dairy farmer from Western Victoria, to share her insights about the role that farmers can play in research and the benefits for enhanced outcomes at calving. Okay, hello and welcome everyone. My name is Liz Mann and I'm a Regional Extension Officer with Dairy Taz. Um, and for the past 12 months, I've been working with the Victorian Innovation Agreement, or the VDIA, as we call it. Um, the VDIA is a joint venture agreement between Dairy Australia, Agriculture Victoria, and the Gardener Foundation. And it looks after major research projects such as Dairy Bio and Dairy Feed Base. So for those of you who are joining us who are spring calving, you may have just commenced or about to start your first round of AI this week or in the next week or so. And this is exciting time for everyone. So we're full of all these hopes and expectations of healthy, happy calves in twelve in nine months time. Gosh, twelve months. We don't want that. Um, but as we all know, nature can intervene, and sometimes calves are not born healthy and happy. Um, so joining us this month is current PhD student Michelle Axford um, and Western Victorian dairy farmer Tori Tuckett. And between the three of us, we're going to be talking about all things calf vitality and calf record keeping and how this can go, this can help improve calving on your farm. So welcome, Tori, and welcome, Michelle. Hi, how are you? All good here, Tori. Thank you. Um, all right, before we start talking calves, we better get to know the two of you a little bit better. So, Michelle, we'll start with you. You've been around the dairy industry for a little while and there's people probably in this webinar that have met you um, in different roles in genetics and herd improvement over the years. Um, and people probably know you're not quite an Australian, native Australian, but in just one minute, which might be a bit of a push, could you introduce yourself to us, please? Thanks, Liz. Um, yes. Um, so my husband and I, we dairy farm in um, southeastern Australia in South Gippsland, um, a um, pasture-based, naturally raised uh, farm. Um, I mean, we have, you know, about 280 cows or so that we're milking here, so not a terribly uh, big farm. We've been farming here for 25 years, but as my accent might suggest, um, it, I haven't, wasn't born in Australia. Um, but my family are actually dairy farmers from Canada, uh, and my brothers are still dairy farming there on the property, which has been in our family's um, name for about five generations. Uh, so we've got sort of, I suppose, dairy running through our blood in lots of ways. It's hard to get out of the blood, isn't it, really, Michelle? <laughs> yeah. um, so, and it is that sort of your mix of practical and theoretical um, farming and genetics that we're going to be getting into today. Um, so before we go and do that, Tori, where are you farming? How many cows are you hacking, et cetera? So my husband and I own and operate a 750-cow farm down near Terrain in southwest Victoria. Um, we moved from northern Victoria two years ago, so shifted from all-year-round calving back to three times a year calving. And seven weeks ago, we became a fully robotic dairy farm. So 
our cows have been milked through eight lowly A5 robots. And yeah, but exciting. <laughs> and that's all going well? <laughs> it is, yeah. It's going as, as good as can be expected and the cows have transitioned really, really well. So yeah, it's exciting, very exciting times. Yeah, very exciting. Exactly. Now, we will be talking to you about your carving in a little bit, but what we might do is start with you first, Michelle. Um, now, Michelle, you are currently a PhD candidate with Agriculture Victoria um, and Dairy Bio. I've seen you present on your information that you've found so far in your um, PhD work. You haven't completed your PhD, and we will be talking about that in a bit, but when you talk about calf deaths, your your research, actually, before we go any further, what are you researching, Michelle? Uh, well, I when we think of the breeding values that farmers have access to, there are about 50 different traits that people can breed for, but most of them are focused on the on the on the cows and our milking herd, and that makes a lot of sense. You know, that's where um, you know we've spent most of our time. But about a third of the stock that we'll have on our farm are young stock, so calves and heifers, replacements that are going to enter the herd. And we don't actually have a lot that thinks about their health and the efficiency of that side of the operation. And um, and and for years, farmers would say, you know, they loved this particular bull because his calves were fantastic, or this bull they didn't like so much because his calves were difficult to rear. So I think farmers were kind of, you know, suggesting that there are differences between bulls. And I was curious about can we actually practically um, measure that in a way that could produce a breeding value to identify calves that are born alive more often than dead and that um, are successful through weaning and that they kind of, are, you know, they thrive and they make it to weaning without having uh, too many issues. Um, and so that's was the, the instigator, I suppose, of the research. Um, and it, that's quite interesting because one of the things when you talk about calf deaths, it roughly equates to about 7% of all calves that are born are stillborn. Um, and so that's, if you look at it, flip that, 93% of our calves are born alive and happy and healthy. Why Why do you decided to spend this time looking at 7% of our calf deaths and whether genetically we can have an impact on that? Yeah, and it's a fair question because um, obviously we want to invest time in things that are going to you know, make a difference. But if we if we look at it, uh, from a national point of view, while 7% doesn't sound like a very big number, it's actually about 90,000 calves each year. That's a big stack of calves. Um, and that's a lost opportunity. You know, there's probably some good genetic merit animals that we actually would want in our herd that might be, you know, in that group of calves that didn't make it. Um, you know, there's a, there's the, you know, there's a sustainability component. It's not nice to have, um, you know, calves that unfortunately don't make it to past um, weaning. Um, so, so I think from a few perspectives, um, it's useful to have um, something that, to improve the fate of these calves. And I suppose the, the interesting bit is when I had a, a look, the first part of the PhD was looking at historical records. So if we look over the last 20 years, can we measure genetic differences between animals for the trait of stillbirth? Um, and we did find that we could measure differences. The heritability is low, similar to other health traits, but we could measure genetic differences. And that's the basis. If we can do that, then it means that we've got something that we can measure and monitor and, and potentially select, select animals for. 
But I, I find that fascinating that you can actually genetically measure this. Um, and we, we'll come to some of that and the difference between management and genetics. But if you're, um, before the webinar, we were talking about, um, you know, how complicated measuring calf vitality is. It's not a simple thing to measure. And you said to me it takes two to tango um, in order to deliver a life live calf. Would you like to explain who the two players are? Because there kind of could be three, if you think about it, to get a live calf on the ground. Yep. Uh, yep. So, well, we won't get into the exact uh, details of the birds and the bees, but <laughs> we did. Oh, it wasn't me. When we think about the calving activity, there are two animals involved. There's the calf who kind of instigates the calving sort of process. And then there's the mother that has to deliver the calf. And that means it's a slightly different trait than, say, something like milk production, which is kind of just about one animal, one cow producing milk. In this case, we've got two actors, two animals to think about. And so, and we can actually go into the, you know, we can actually separate genetically the genetics of the calf that's being born from the genetics of the cow that's delivering the calf. And so some ways are actually two separate traits. And as farmers, we probably want both. We want a successful calf that's alive and ready to roll. Um, and we want a cow that's had a successful calving. Um, so we, we actually want success across both of those traits. And we can actually look at them as two separate traits to breed for. So that's interesting. Like, I find it fascinating that you can genetically separate that out. Because for me at calving, there is so many opportunities for mismanagement that could impact on the outcome of calving. So, you know, we could have poor period, poor transition period management. We can have poor post-calving care, you know, with poor colostrum management. How do you separate out that there is a genetic component impacting on the vitality of the calf compared to the management of that calf? Yeah, this is the question, and actually, we're not the only ones that have asked this question because I think it's you know it it, it can stretch our, our well, my brain at least sometimes to kind of uh, pu pull this together. Um, but yeah, there are lots of factors that can influence this trait and all of the other traits that we can breed for genetically. This isn't unique in this case, but if we go back, there's a a, a dairy kid by the name of Jay Lash, like almost well in like the 1930s and 40s, it was working and was asking the same very question. And in, and, and so he was one of the guys that kind of dreamed up this idea of being able to analyze records, a lot of records, to separate the variation that's coming from genetics from the variation that's coming from management and what you could just describe as, as bad luck. And how that works from a practical point of view is each of us on farm, we're collecting a lot of records. And so we kind of almost have our own little mini research activity happening on our own farm. And we know that each each season is different, like our spring is different to autumn and our years are different. So this year is a little bit different to last year, a little bit different to the year before. And our herds are different. My herd's different to Tori's herd. But there's something that connects us and that's the pedigree of the animals that we have on our farm. 
So we can use some pretty nifty stats and software that is available through Dairy Bio that we've got access to. There's some amazing resources that we've got access to, to take the records that farmers are collecting. And we make little comparisons to figure out which calves or which cows are a little bit better or a little bit worse within their group. So the group is animals that are born on the same herd, the same year, in the same season. And we look at who's a little bit better and who's a little bit worse. And then we can compare who's done well across all kinds of herds in years and seasons by linking the pedigree relationships that exist between those animals. And by doing that, we can see, well, what's the part that we can kind of allocate to, to genetics and what's the part that we can allocate to management or to bad luck. And it's that genetic bit that then we're able to provide a, a measure for, an estimate to predict how good or how poor that animal will be for this trait or for, for any other any other traits. So it's that combination of good records that farmers keep, that pedigree connection between all of these herds, years and seasons, um, and the power of the computers and the stats programs that we've got at Dairy Bio and that know-how that allows us to be able to do that. Yeah. And that's amazing. What um, We'll talk about records in a second, but what have you sort of, with the calf vitality stuff, you know, what have you found so far? Um, well, um, I suppose the, the first question was, is it actually practical and possible to measure genetic variation? If there's if there's so much noise in there that we can't actually measure the genetic component, then it's very difficult to establish a breeding value that would be you know, useful at all to farmers. So the first question is, is it practical and possible? And to, to do that, we looked at the historical records over the last 20 years to see, um, because farmers have been doing a great job of collecting information over that time period. And so that gave us quite a lot to kind of work with. And the outcomes from that first bit were, uh, well, one, it, it is possible to measure genetic variation. That the heritability is low, kind of between one and 5%, depending on which breed it is and which trait we're working with. Um, uh, but that's similar to other kind of health traits. Uh, the reliability of the first breeding values is kind of similar to other breeding values that don't have genomics included for health traits. They're not really interesting enough for farmers to want to use yet, I don't think. Uh, and we need to be able to test and validate to make sure that those breeding values are actually doing a good job um, and add the genomic component to that. And so that's setting us up for this second stage of the of the project. So we were partially successful, but there's still a way to go. Yeah. And so you talked about you've looked at historic carving records, and we're about to bring Tori in soon to talk about what she records. But what sort of records have you been looking at in the research um, and, and, you know, how does, how's that helping you? Yeah. So um, I think many farmers on the call will be familiar with the calving records that they keep. So when a calf is born, uh, they might record that they know the pedigree of the animal. So they would have the sire of the calf recorded and the dams recorded. Um, they would record the size of the calf, whether the calving was an easy calving or a difficult calving. Uh, and they would also record the fate of the calf, whether it was alive or dead. And that piece called fate is actually our stillbirth component. So that tells us whether the calf is alive or dead. Uh, then later on, um, farmers will record when a calf dies. So the calf gets recorded. And if for whatever reason it dies, it gives it a termination date. And I use that termination information 
then to determine which calves were successful to at least stage of weaning. Um, so this gave us uh, the trait of stillbirth, then the trait of pre-weaning mortality, which is the second trait that we looked at. We'll go one step further and look at pre-weaning illness as well, but I haven't got there yet. Yeah. Well, you've got a little bit of time left yet, Michelle. <laughs> um, so we might throw to, um, well, might even bring Tori into the conversation now. Um, just around records and what sort of records you're keeping on your farm, Tori? Yeah. Well. Yeah. So our record keeping starts straight after we preg test. So any cows that um, we can identify are carrying multiple calves, that's recorded. They are then flagged during the, the transition period. So as soon as they come into the maternity area, we know that, you know, that cow is carrying twins, she might be a bit more predisposed to calving issues. Those calves are always your at-risk calves from from birth through to pre-weaning. Um, we, we're very observant during that calving period. Um, our staff, we all communicate via WhatsApp. So we have a calving group on the app um, and as soon as a cow calves, the calf is identified, matched with the cow. Um, the calves, uh, the heifers and beef calves and bulls are all brought straight into the calving, the calf rearing facility. As soon as we can get them in, our colostrum is tested. They're fed straight away. The other key part of it is recording anything that's slightly amiss during the birthing process or just after. So um, that can range from, you know, whether the calf um, was suffering dystocia, whether the cow was assisted, you know, whether the cow suffered milk fever or some ketosis before she was calved. Um, was it a prolonged birthing period? Um, you know, did, did the calf get stressed during birth and you know, did um, umbilicals is another huge thing, you know, looking at the condition of umbilical cords when the calf is born straight away and identifying if there's any issues with that, contracted tendons, anything like that is reported um, on the group or on our spreadsheet. And we just know from, from the word go if there's anything else that we need to be focusing on, especially within the first 24 hours post-birth. Yeah. Cool. Um, so Michelle, Tori's been involved in your research. How have you used those records that Tori's, um, pulled together for you? Um, I've been, um, well, I'm um, really grateful for the role that Tori has played and about 50 other farmers have been participating in the calf fatality project now for a couple of years. Um, and they've helped me collect information, um, from, um, about 20,000 calves. Uh, this is around Australia. And because they have an interest in calves and an interest in recording data, um, the, this group of people have been recording sort of detailed records about calves. So not only did they live or die, but also things, um, you know, were, were they ill for some reason? Did they have a case of scours or pneumonia or something? Um, they've been recording, um, uh, even to the stage of 
a trait we're calling calf vitality. So giving them a, a score from A to E of, a, a, you know, are they a ripper calf or are they a bit of a, a dud? Uh, so they've been recording a few extra little uh, pieces um, for us that we'll um, try to, to use to help improve the breeding values. This group of farmers that's really important because it's able allowed us to uh, amass a data set of both live and dead cats that all had genotypes. And that, that's quite important. And that will help us validate the original breeding values to work at if they're, um, you know, if they are fit for purpose and we'll do a good job of um, selecting, um, you know, either better bulls or poorer bulls or better heifers or poorer heifers um, for the for the calf traits. So Tori, Michelle's obviously getting you to ask a lot, um, record a lot of things that you probably haven't recorded before. Has that been useful? And how do you, like you record a lot, you talk just then, you record a lot, you've got all over the place. How do you use that information? Like that's a lot of information. <laughs> I think the biggest thing to come out of it was the actual vitality ranking. So going from A to E, um, that really highlighted some patterns in terms of yeah, carbs, dams, sires, um, and, and it was probably something you really didn't think about beforehand. You just got a calf in, you fed the calf, you watched it grow, you wean it or sell it, whatever. So, yeah, that vitality ranking has actually triggered quite a, a big thought process that isn't just in that calf shed. Like it actually, there's, there's patterns that continue on once they leave that calf facility so it's um yeah that's been the best thing I think to come out of it is that you actually do stop and think about the vitality of a calf and just watching them you know it's um it's pretty incredible when you, you start recording it and actually yeah seeing seeing calves that might have similar scores in terms of vitality you know because you're looking at everything you know willingness attitude temperament and it and it it's all part of this big jigsaw. So, yeah, it was really cool. Has it changed how you um, make decisions about your calves and which ones you keep and which ones you maybe sell on? Yeah, it does. And and that also links into the other aspects of genomic testing. So it's just giving you another tool to help make that decision. Um and, and there are patterns, like I said, there might be a calf that has a poor vitality score because of, uh, look, it might not be overly interested in, you know, drinking and it might not be vigorous. And you'll often see that that can show itself post-waning. It's, yeah, it's really incredible. And just, and then there's calves that might come in that um, have had a difficult birth and then you can, they might have great vitality in terms of willingness to drink and being easy to manage. And it's, yeah, it's really fascinating because it, it does make you stop and think and go, well, yeah, I know that that one had a really poor attitude or it wasn't the sort of calf you want to be rearing. So you can just put that to the next column and say, well, she's potentially one that will get sold and, and not come through the system. So so we're just at no, we're just at the start start of um, analyzing that calf vitality information. So we have about four thousand records, calf vitality records from the project. So um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see where that heads mm. once we start um, um, looking at to see if we can measure a genetic component of that 
fatality score. Yeah. And that, that was, I suppose, Michelle, you've been interacting with all these other farmers, not just Tori. Uh, do you know if they're making um, different decisions based on the records that they're keeping? Well, I think there are some decisions that we can make um, in terms of uh, just recording, better recording of the illnesses that are happening on farms. So if we think about, um, you know, how did that how did that group um, um, travel, uh, having more detailed records about who was sick and who wasn't sick. I think that's an important thing to be able to track over time in terms of managing disease risk down the, the track. Uh, I think it's also um, useful to, um, uh, when we think about the uh, the next step, where those animals are going and selling those animals, there are some programs that are wanting to have more detailed treatment records about what happened to that calf while it was in the calf shed. And so by having good records already, it makes us a little bit easier to be able to sell into those markets, as well as having the pedigree records of those calves already at hand and easily accessible so that if you do want to sell into a market that's looking for particular pedigrees, whether it's you know beef cross dairy pedigree or, or dairy pedigree, you've got that information already at hand. So it's pretty easy to turn around and, and provide that to a potential um, purchaser of those uh, of those animals. So I think there's a, there are other non-genetic reasons to collect that information um, over and above what we're using the data for for the study. Yeah. Um, when it comes to your records, Tori, that you're keeping, yeah. what barriers do you hit to making sure that you're like recording stuff? Surely there's got to be things that occasionally just get in the way and how do you get around that? I've got a notebook. <laughs> oh, trust me, not last notebooks. It's just a piece of paper and a pen. Is that it? <laughs> no, I have notebooks everywhere. It drives my husband insane <laughs> because I could have multiple books <laughs> for each for each coffee. Um, yeah, and I think that's the beauty of having um, access to apps like WhatsApp and. Um, you know, we've got herd recording programs like Easy Dairy. If you've got the record there, you can still go back to it. You, you know, as long as you document something at the time, then you can go back and input it in. And I think that's, that's the most important thing. It doesn't really matter where you record it as long as you are recording it and then utilizing that. And, and like Michelle said, you know, we have audits for, for our milk supply companies um, and, you know, there are components to do with animal health and welfare and your calf rearing systems. And it is really important that, all, you know, treatments and everything like that is recorded because, yeah, it's paramount to what we do. Yep. Yep. So I might just pause for half a second and just remind everyone that um, if you want to type in any questions, we're about to come to the audience questions section. We've got a few more left for Tori and Michelle yet. Um, but if you just want to use that Q&A button down the bottom and type your questions in, um, we'll ask those um, in a few minutes. Before we move off the records topic, um, I was probably going to ask the question that a couple of farmers are thinking, at least. Um, why should they care about keeping good records, um, particularly when it comes to maybe research purposes, but just why why... Why bother going that extra mile with calf vitality and, and the like? Uh, both of you could probably provide an answer for that one. I think the starting point is because it's good for herd management. It's good to be able to kind of assess and benchmark your own herd. Like that's the that's the, that's the primary goal for collecting the, the records. 
the the added bonus is that we're also able to use that information for research. And in the case of um, producing, you know, genetic values, um, breeding values of of all sorts, that's not something that we as individual farmers can do ourselves. We actually need each other to be able to am amass enough information from a range of pedigrees, um, from a range of systems and environments and approaches to farming. We need we need enough put together to be able to develop those breeding values and to reliably produce them week after week. And that as an individual farmer, we can't really do that on our own. We kind of need to work together on that. And that's where, you know, the systems, the software systems that, you know, Tori mentioned sort of earlier, the data processing centers and herd recording centers, the genomic service providers were all part of this sort of um, tangly web of of, of of data collection that leads to um, the centralized data repository at DataGene um, that we then get to use for research and for also producing reading values and other useful reports that farmers um, can benefit from. Yeah, cool. Tori, you got any comment? Uh I suppose my only comment on it is, you know, we've got these amazing herds out there who are producing bulls for farmers like us to use in our herds, and that that makes a huge improvement on genetic gain within our herds. Everyone's very quick to blame a bull if something goes wrong, but we also have cows. So the way I see it is if we can help provide some data to help that decision-making process easier and more accurate and to make the job of calf rearer a lot easier, then why not do it? Because the, the investment time in the whole scheme of things is, it's not huge, you know, it's, it's a pretty simple process to be able to help provide Michelle with some data for a project that's got huge potential. Yeah. I think you, you've kind of got a choice here on farm. So we can either deal with the consequences of poor genetics, like, yes. you know, poor fertility, poor calf health, mastitis problems. We can either deal with that or we can write down a few records. And I, I suppose I, I kind of think it's easier to write down a few records, but maybe others disagree. <laughs> Deeper, I reckon, Michelle. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, so, Michelle, it's actually interesting. This morning, um, I get email alerts sent through different um, scientific papers that are um, out there. One of them that came through was around, um, I think it was work, may have been work out of the US. Um, I haven't quite, I didn't have time to go back and read it, but just the work that they're doing in a similar space um, around looking at, you know, is it the bull genetics affecting calf vitality, I think was the, the actual one that came through. But it, what other work is happening around the world? We can't be the only ones who are thinking about this here in Australia. Yeah, that's right. There are um, other um, groups in other countries that are working um, on similar, but not exactly the same as what we're trying to do here in, in Australia. So there are groups, um, there's a colleague in Canada, for example, that's looking at um, the genetics of different um, diseased agents. So can we develop a breeding value for a specific type of scours or a specific type of pneumonia, for example? Um, there are other groups that are looking at survival to different time periods. So, for example, to survival of a calf to 12 months or survival of a calf to 18 months. So there are different approaches and some of those have breeding values that are already being published and, and used. Um, uh, 
one of the things I suppose that we've done a little bit differently is we've genotyped a lot of these dead cats, which doesn't sound like a lot of fun, but it does give us a resource that's quite uh, that's innovative. Uh, there's not too many pockets of this or pools of, of data like this. Uh, so that's something that we want to be able to explore to see if that can um, illuminate any other issues or things that we can kind of do something do something about. Um, so we're not the only ones, but we do like to kind of catch up um, to um, swap some stories and share ideas um, with each other, um, which is good fun. Yeah, and and that's so important that across country, I think that's the word after, international um, linkages um, is really important. Yeah, um, it does come back to, I think it, um, it, it's, we can all learn from each other and understanding what other people are doing is so important to help us build. It's like, you know, um, yeah, standing on the shoulders of giants to be able to kind of, you know, make that next, the next step. Uh, but critically, we need to validate the work that we're doing and make sure that the breeding values work here in Australian herds. Our herds are very important and they're too important to risk using information that's not tested here in Australia. And so that's why I think it's really important not only to do the first step of the project, which is to make the breeding values, but the second step to actually validate it and make sure that it's working in Australian herds. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It, we can look at international stuff, but it has to be Australian at the same time. Exactly. Um, now, Michelle, you're three years into your part-time PhD. We need to let people know that. You're not just slow. You're doing it part-time. <laughs> <laughs> you got 18 months left to go. Um, can, you know, what can farmers expect to see coming out the end and, you know, how can they sort of engage with your research over the next 18 months or so or however long you've got left? Yeah, I suppose our expectation is that we would be able to develop breeding values for these calf traits, so stillbirth, direct stillbirth maternal, pre-weaning mortality and pre-weaning morbidity, so calf sickness pre-weaning. Um, but the the we're, but we're not at the stage where they have been validated, so we haven't been able to kind of say this is what the reliability of this breeding value is and check to see that it is fit for purpose. So we're still in the research stage. Um, however, if we do get to the end and the reliability is sufficient enough that we think farmers will find good value in these in this information, we do want to be able to present it in a way that makes sense to farmers, and. As a result, we are actually circulating a survey, and hopefully, Liz, we might be able to circulate that um, uh, through this uh, system as well, to ask for farmers to kind of provide some feedback on how they value calf traits and how they would like things presented so that it makes the most sense. So we are encouraging farmers and service providers to have their say, um, give us some feedback, and that will help advise the later stages of the project so that we can deliver something that matches people's expectations. And I have just popped that in the chat for everyone. Um, if people want to click on that before you leave the webinar, stay listening to us, of course. But if you want to click on that before you leave the webinar, it should open up in a website for you and um, you'll be able to answer it afterwards. Because, Michelle, how long will it take people to do that survey? Do you? Uh, 10 or 15 minutes. Okay. Yeah, that's not too yep. bad. Time to have a cup of tea and do the survey. <laughs> Exactly. You can have your bit of lunch while you, or if you haven't eaten lunch while you're listening to us. Um, so I've got a couple of questions that have come in. So we might start with those. Um, one of the ones I've got that I'm going to ask this one first, even though I've come in second. 
Um, are you collecting data from all breeds, including crossbreds? And I promise, Michelle, I did not ask this question. <laughs> Um, absolutely. So we are collecting data from all breeds. We actually even have the beef cross calves in the study as well. Uh, so I can tell you that from the from um, the, the the fifty herds um, that that are part of this this sort of second stage, um, we do have virtually all breeds represented. Um, obviously, there's a lot of Holsteins um, in that group, uh, with Jersey being the second most popular, and and Reds, Aussie Reds, and Ayrshire being the third. Um, we do have some representation from all breeds there. We did, um, 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 just thinking about the herds that are around, um, clearly there's more Holsteins than others. And so we see that matched in the this, this group of 50 herds that we've got as well. So I think I'll probably, there's two questions here I might combine together. Um, is there a four-calf vitality? Um, is there breed-specific traits? determined by the breed or are they common traits in terms of calf vitality that all breeds share so common across all breeds yeah uh the the way that the breeding values are expressed in australia is within the breed group and so we would expect this to follow a similar pattern you would compare holstein stillbirth to holstein stillbirth in that breed and stillbirth in jerseys we would compare it to stillbirth in jerseys in that breed first um, breed is one of those factors that we want to be able to account for in the models that help us predict the breeding values. Um, we know it's a factor, and so we want to be able to adjust for that um, right off the right off the bat. So we're doing a fair comparison: Holstein to Holstein, Ayrshire to Ayrshire, Jersey to Jersey. Yep. So are you not comparing crossbreeds presently? Uh, so cross crossbreeds um, no, across different breeds. Sorry, no, not not across different breeds. Oh, look, we could probably do some summary sort of stuff across different breeds. Um, but in terms of the genetic component of it, we when we work in the genetic area, we do work within a breed group. Yeah. And so, no one breed standing out is better than the other, Michelle. Uh, well, they do have different characteristics, but based on based on the first um, part of the project where we did um, look at you know rates of um, calving difficulties, for example, that's a classic one. There are more more cases of calving difficulty in Holstein compared to Jersey, but interestingly, we had more stillbirths in Jersey than we did from Holstein. So the, there did seem to be differences between breeds when we look at those kind of raw summaries statistics. Interesting. Um, and this one, I think this one's for the both of you. Um, someone said, that sounds great. Thank you. Um, are the spreadsheets available for farmers to access to use? I think that might be spreadsheets that you were talking about um, earlier in terms of calf records. Tori, you talked about all the different WhatsApp, Easy Dairy, blah, blah, blah. Do you use Excel spreadsheets at all? And how did you get access them? Did you build them yourself or find Yeah, I built it myself. Yeah. Yep. So just recording, yeah, like what I said, basic information from calving and also recording colostrum feeding and yep. and what bricks they were fed as well. And then those, yeah, that's entered then onto Easy Dairy and then it just is filed away. Looking across the 50 herds in the study, there is a, quite an, a lot of differences between how people were collecting the information. Um, but if people were looking to kind of start um, the you, you know you can start your own spreadsheet and that's great for your own herd management purposes. Um, if you're wanting to be able to um, you know have information stored 
in the centralized data repository kind of over time to be able to be used for research for breeding values. Um, we can use things like uh, herd data, which is a, like an app that can be used to record information, um, Easy Dairy, Maestro, those programs um, do a lovely job of being able to record information and share that um, more centrally as well. So those are a couple of tools. Um, if anyone wants a copy of the spreadsheet that I uh, that the calf vitality participants used, more than happy to share that. But it's very it's it's very simple. It's it's not kind of rocket rocket science. Yep, Tori's will be more complex because she's um, <laughs> adding extra information over and above what the research It's on one sheet of paper. So <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I get rid of some columns. Um. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. So, Tori, what extra information above what Michelle's asking? Because I thought it would be the other way around. I thought Michelle would be asking you for more information than you normally record. Do you? The only, and it links probably to um, calf vitality score. So I never had anything like that on my sheet. The only thing I recorded different was the colostrum feeding, make sure they had at least two feeds of colostrum. And the other one was, no, it was on Michelle's sheet, if there was any calving issues. So, yeah, whether, like, there was contracted tendons or was a pulled calf breached, anything like that. But, yeah, it was, it's pretty similar. It's just, yeah, my normal herd sheet doesn't have anything to do with the vitality on that. Yep. Yep. Fair enough. All right. We might wrap it up at that. So, thank you very much tori and michelle for your time it's been great chatting with both of you um and we all know calves are the cuties and the reward for all the effort that we put in um and so it's good to know what the latest research is that's happening in this space and how we can help improve outcomes like calving if you'd like to find out more visit dairyaustralia.com.au forward slash dairy bio Links to this page and the full webinar recording are also available in the episode notes. We hope that you have enjoyed this DairyPod episode. If you have any questions or ideas for future episodes, you can get in contact with us by emailing dairypod at dairyaustralia.com.au. Thank you for listening.